Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Eastern Fathers on Involuntary Sin by Father Maximus of the Holy Resurrection Monastery in St. Nazan's, Wisconsin. This fifth episode is part two of St. John of Damascus. This is the fifth in our reflections on the idea of involuntary sin, that phrase that we get in our prayer text so often, thinking about what this could mean, using especially as our guides the writings of a number of the fathers of the church, most especially St. John of Damascus and his, his predecessors, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Dionysius the Adriophagite. In our previous talks, we've put St. John of Damascus's thought into a context using his, his patristic predecessors and also the philosophical context, particularly the uh, writings of pagan Neoplatonists such as Plotinus, uh, which is necessary to understand exactly what uh, intellectual resources St. Damascene is able to draw on in order to express an opinion about what it means to be human and what it means then to have a human will, uh, a vision of what it means to be human in which human nature is called to the absolute maximum degree of freedom, freedom seen as fulfillment of our yearning for un union with God. In this talk, we're going to be talking again about St. John of Damascus, and we'll be looking in some depth at the way in which he has taken his sources, the intellectual, theological resources that we've been considering, the Neoplatonists, the Greek fathers like St. Maximus, and so forth, and really gone to war against any idea of dualism any vestigial dualism in Christian thought. By dualism here I mean the idea that there is between humanity and divinity, between human nature and the divine nature, some unbridgeable gulf, some innate uh, natural incompatibility. No, St. John of Damascus will go to war in order to champion the idea that Human nature and the divine nature are ultimately compatible. So that any kind of sin cannot be blamed on nature. Any kind of sin cannot be blamed on nature, including involuntary sin. We can't use the excuse of nature to say that we have been unable to fulfill our natural des our desire to do good. No. If we sin, it's because our nature is not bad or corrupt or wicked or evil or incapable of doing good. If we sin, it is because our nature is diseased. Our nature is sick and we need to be healed. And this includes involuntary sin. If we sin against our will, it's not because our nature has made us do it, 
it's because our nature is sick. And it is the disease, not the nature, but the disease, the moral disease to which we are subject, that has led us astray. So again, we turn back to consideration of some of the foundational concepts that John is working with in order to establish this position. And perhaps the most basic concept he's working with, and he gets this from Greek, his Greek philosophical tradition, is that unity, unity, is ontologically prior to diversity, which is a fancy way of saying that one comes before two. But by this he doesn't just mean that we go, we count in order, one, two, three, four. What he means is unity, which is really God. God is the source of all that is. And therefore, all that is yearns to return to God. This is a fundamental principle that he's working with. He says, Sir Damascene says, uh, in the very first chapter of his exposition on the Orthodox faith, the third part of the Fountainhead of Knowledge, his great work, he says, having first quoted the great Shema, the Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, in support of this idea that unity is first, oneness is first, St. John Damascene goes on to say, besides all this, that is the scriptural arguments, it is naturally necessary that the originating principle of duality be unity. Now, Damascene here is clearly using the thought of the Christian Neoplatonists that he's read so carefully, especially St. Dionysius, through the Dionysian texts, this theological tradition has appropriated fundamental philosophical notions, in particular, two. One, evil does not have any substance of its own. Evil does not exist by itself. This is an idea that was certainly present in even pagan Neoplatonist thought. <laughs> But it is also present in the scriptures. The whole basis of the Hebrew scriptural idea of creation from nothing means that God is the creator of all things. And God cannot create evil. So here we have philosophy and scripture supporting one another. Beautifully. That's the first point. Evil has no substance. Evil is simply a corruption of what is. It doesn't exist in its own right. And the second thing is that freedom is not primarily the ability to choose what we like from among many different choices. Because remember, the many things that we can choose have all their origin in one thing. And it is that one thing behind all, that one unity behind all multiplicity that we are really always reaching for. Therefore, freedom is not the ability to choose. Primarily, freedom, most fundamentally, is fulfillment of the natural yearning for God. Now, there is a difference, of course, between Christian and pagan philosophy, Christian and pagan Neoplatonism, obviously. Pagan philosophers did not work from the notion of creation from nothing. Pagan philosophers accepted that there was God 
and the universe existed, pre-existed uh, pre with God. God was not necessarily the creator of all things. Therefore, the fundamental correction that St. Dionysius and his heirs, like Damascene, like Maximus, make to the Neoplatonic philosophy they were reading is to insist on the direct creation by God of all being. So, salvation for them is not becoming one with God by folding back into uh, God at the expense of the world around us, the world of phenom the phenomenal world around us. We don't leave the world to enter into God's world, because God is the source of all worlds. We take the world with us. We take all that is good in the world with us in this return to God, in the fulfillment of our freedom, the fulfillment of our natural desire for God. We take everything that is good in our lives with us. This has immense consequences for the theology of the will. Because one of the things, one of the means by which we take things with us is by exercising our will, by deciding what is good, by distinguishing what is good from what is simply a corruption of the good. By living lives in, in accordance with God's will, we take with us on our spiritual journey back to God all that is good. The tradition, therefore, that St. John of Damascus has inherited is radically opposed to any form of dualism. All being has its origin in the personal love of the Father, hypostatic love of the Father, a love that is, as we've seen, not necessary, but because it is for the full, because God's nature is to love, it's filled, it's free, the fulfillment of His love. It is significant that John begins his major work, his um, Fountainhead of Divine Knowledge, the very first part being the dialectica, the philosophical section of the Fountainhead, not by a metaphysical assertion, but with a statement about how we know anything. God gives us the light by which we see. It's divine illumination. In other words, we are illumined directly by the Father through the Spirit sent forth in the Son. St. John says, Nothing is more estimable than knowledge, for knowledge is the light of the rational soul. In other words, the principle of being and the principle of knowing the source of life and the source of our knowledge of life. Absolutely identical. God, the Father. This means that the proper response of us creatures as both living and thinking creatures is also the same. As we are, so should we do. And it is the will that enables us to join our doing with our being. It's the coordinating faculty. This is the practical application of that two-act theory that we were talking about a couple of uh, reflections ago.
the what we do on the outside is a true reflection, or should be, if all is well, all is healthy, a true reflection of who we are on the inside. That is how it is for God. God, who is love, loves. And we, who are cap- we are also lovers, as human lovers, on the inside, yearning to love in our external energy, in our external operations, in, our, in the way in which we deal with the world around us. To the extent that we creatures fail to direct our will toward the fulfillment of our nature, to the extent that we fail to love, this is a consequence of some disruption, some disease within us. This is why St. John of Damascus, following St. Maximus, so concerned to distinguish between willing and how we will, between our ability to will in accordance with nature and the way, in fact, we express our will through deliberation and choice, natural will and gnomic will. The first belongs to nature, the second depends on judgment or opinion, and therefore it is fallible. And if we find ourselves mistaken, we must return again to the truth. The perfect human being, Christ, possesses a fully human will in consequence of his assumption of human nature. But he did not exercise that will. Both fathers, all the fathers, are at pains to say. Christ, possessing a human will, is always united in that will to the Father's will. Which means he did not exercise his human will through the mode of deliberation, of judgment, of weighing means and ends. He saw clearly, and he did. He did in accordance with who he was, who he is. He does in accordance with who he is. Therefore, for us humans, growth in virtue means growth in conformity to Christ. It means coordinating our will and through our will our choices with what we naturally yearn for. Always the good, always love always in accordance with the wholeness of our human nature, our natural integrity. Rather than, we must always act, we must use our, employ our will through the mode of obedience. Obedience, which is always fulfillment of our natural desire for God, not through the mode of our own gnomi, our own seeking our own ends substituting our own ends for those that we naturally yearn for. St. Damascene says, also in the exposition on the Orthodox faith, the third part of the Fountainhead of Knowledge, the third chapter, quote, Now asceticism and the labors connected with it were not intended for the acquisition of virtue as something to be introduced from the outside but for the expulsion of evil which has been introduced and is against nature, just as the steel's rust, which is not natural but due to neglect, we remove with hard toil to bring out the natural brightness of the steel. This is how St. Damascene presents sin to us. It's the soul rusting away. 
And if you want the soul to be healthy, you must remove the rust. It is clear that St. John of Damascus and St. Maximus before him saw the whole tradition of asceticism. All of us, all of us, monastic asceticism and also the asceticism of the laity through the lens of this basic integrity of the natural. So there's no distinction here between what we are trying to do when we are at prayer in church, when we are at prayer in our own rooms, when we are trying to grow in uh, morally, trying to do the right thing, or when we are seeking mystical, spiritual experience, whether we're engaged in the active life or the contemplative life. It's all about the same thing, stopping the soul from rusting, healing what is wounded, curing what is diseased in us, returning always to our true selves, our natural selves, our natural selves, where we are integral, we are integrated, we are whole, and we are responsive to love. It is impossible from this standpoint to think of spirituality as separate from morality. It's not that we have to first of all become moral and then we can worry about spiritual growth. The two go together. And therefore, we cannot speak of sin and righteousness as though they concern a body of legal rules that are external to our moral selves or external to our spiritual selves. It's a whole. And here we take a very short step and we begin to conceive of sin not as the transgression of some external rule, but rather evidence of the presence of rust on the soul. Sin, any sin, including the sin that we discover in ourselves as opposed to the sin that we choose for ourselves. Any sin, including involuntary sin, is evidence of the rusty soul. St. Damascene combated dualism by formulating and expressing in every, at every opportunity this concept of natural integrity in which both moral collapse and existential failure are essentially the same thing. If I do the wrong moral act or if I experience in myself the absence of God, essentially it's the same problem, the rusty soul. The philosophical and the theological system that St. Damascene inherited gave him the intellectual resources to develop a moral and a spiritual vision entirely coherent with his metaphysical principles, the integrity of the natural. And this must shed light on how St. Damascene would have understood the liturgical formulae of his own tradition, in which we pray again and again for forgiveness of all our sins, voluntary and involuntary. Lord, remove the disease that prevents us being who we are. Lord, remove the rust that prevents us shining with the light that is ours.
by nature and growing in even greater light through what is above nature, what you give us beyond our natural capacity. It remains only to see how this, all this could ultimately win the day against some continuing vestiges of dualism. Now we move on to look in particular at how St. Damascene deals with two intellectual rivals in the Greek patristic tradition. Originism and Messalianism, although I'm going to concentrate mostly on Originism. Because it's, we have to admit that the Greek patristic tradition was by no means unanimous in teaching the integrity of the natural. Two alternative approaches in particular cast long shadows. Originism, the thought associated with the great Alexandrian uh, teacher of the third century, Origen, and Messalianism, an even more uh, dispersed, diverse, and very difficult to pin down teaching. And I'm talking here so not so much about systems of thought that were, as it were, rival churches. You couldn't go down to, you couldn't leave the, the Orthodox Church that St. John Damascene uh, was part of, walk down the street and go to the first Origenist Church of Palestine or the second Messalian Church of, of Odessa. Not, like, not so much like that. These are not so much rival ecclesial structures. They are tendencies of thought that crop up again and again and again because of a difficulty we human beings have, I think, in accepting the remarkable optimism of the orthodox position. It's very difficult to believe, living as we do in these bodies, living as we do in these, in these thoughts, living as we do in these tangle of emotions, that, we all, that, that all of which goes together to constitute human nature, very difficult to believe that this nature is capable of divinity. That this nature doesn't have to be left behind so that we can escape in from it, attain to divine, attain to God's, the world where God lives. The orthodox position is that we take all of this stuff with us. All of it has to be purified and come with us. And this is an optimistic view that's very difficult to believe in a fallen world. And so we have, and so the alternative ways of dealing with the problem of evil in our lives keep cropping up. So as I say, originism and salianism can be thought of as different systems of thought, intellectual tendencies. And there's especially a problem in, for someone like St. John of Damascus coming out of the monastic tradition, because the monasticism of the Christian East has an innate, must be admitted, distrust of the body and of physical passions. And so the uh, institution or the institutions, the numerous institutions of Byzantine monasticism provided fertile ground right through the Byzantine period 
and perhaps to a large extent continues to do so today, a fertile ground whereby these other ways of thinking about the body and of human and of the human tendency to evil could uh, crop up. And so it's for this reason that St. Damascene took such pains to argue against what he saw as, quite rightly saw, as dangerous distortions of the Christian tradition. I can't in these reflections even come close to doing justice to the complexity of either Origenism or Messalianism. Particularly Messalianism, that's a whole uh, area of, of uh, study that's very difficult because the sources, frankly, uh, are, are not at all clear. Probably the, the classic study of Messalianism is the work uh, published in 1991 of Dom Columbus Stewart, titled Working the Earth of the Heart, the Messalian Controversy in History Texts and Language to AD 431. Um, and it's even, I'm even making uh, uh, perhaps something of an audacious claim to say that there was such a thing as a Messalian tendency even as late as the, as the period in which St. Damascene is writing. I would even, if I were pressed, claim that there was such a thing as a Messalian tendency in Byzantine thought even into the 14th century. Uh, and it is not surprising that one of the great accusations that the philosopher, the theologian Balaam made against St. Gregory Palamas was that St. Gregory Palamas was defending Messalians, a.k.a. the Hesychasts. I would say that is evidence of the fact that the tendency of thought was still very much present. The fact that nobody wants to admit to being a Messalian shows that there's a sensitivity and that there's always then a, a feeling that this way of thinking is always dangerously just over the hill. It's very close. And I think it has its root in this deep distrust of the body and the physical reality. So, but in order to get, obviously, that would open, to, to go into any depth on that question would take us into a whole different direction. I can't go there. My justification for treating Messalian origin, originism at all in these reflections is simply because I want to underscore and emphasize how he went to war against dualism wherever he saw it. And it seems to me absolutely clear from the way in which he treats Originism, Messalianism, Manichaeism, any form of thought which asserted a gulf between human nature and the divine nature. Anytime he sees that, he goes after it with every weapon in his intellectual arsenal. So that's why I'm talking about Messalianism and Originism at all. In the chapter on the Messalian heresy in uh, that part of the Fountainhead of Knowledge that deals with heresies, St. John of Damascus claims that Messalianism holds that, quote, evil is natural. Evil is natural. Obviously, then, that is completely counter to any idea of the integrity of nature, the integrity of the natural. 
For my purposes, it doesn't really matter whether this is fair in terms of its description of Masalian belief. The point is, John believed it was what Masalians believed, and that's the point I'm making. I want to highlight the significance for St. John of Damascus of any attack that he perceives on the inherent goodness and unity of nature. And it is also this uh, kind of attack that John detects in the thought of origin and of the originists who came after him. In fact, he calls the opinion, quote, raving, that the human soul and body were created separately, which is certainly the position of origin, who, who held to the pre-existence of souls. In other words, the human, at least a, a major part of what it means to be human, doesn't come from God at all. It exists alongside God. That. Now, there were, of course, many differences between the originists and the Masalian positions with respect to nature. We are not talking about two uh, identical uh, sets of opinion. I'm making that point. But both had something in common. As St. Jerome noticed, as far, as far back as the 4th century, both Masalians and originists seemed to accept the possibility that the human soul might be perfected through the conquest of, human, of evil passions. But until that conquest was secured, the human being remains a slave. A slave to the body. A slave to the demons that inhabit the body. Freedom, therefore, can come only by the elimination of the passionate element within the human being. For Messalians, this seemed to require a victory over the spirit of evil that possesses the mind and the body. For originists, this, the evil seems to be materiality itself, the body itself. In both cases, human freedom requires the elimination of a significant part of the natural human experience. For, for originists, this seems to have been the body in toto. The body has to go. For Messalians, they seem to have had a contempt Perhaps not for the body itself, but for many things the body does, including caring for the poor, for example, including the sacraments, for example. This is what St. Damascene says the Messalians avoid. Quote, manual labor. And they are especially inhuman in their treatment of the poor. They have a contempt for churches and altars. They persuade fathers and mothers to neglect the rearing of children. They receive with alacrity slaves running away from their masters and sinners coming to them without any absolution, without priestly sanction. In other words, you don't need to worry about bodies and the body's needs. You don't need to worry about human community, which is, of course, a community of bodies, a physical community. You don't need to worry about these things. All you have to worry about is some sort of spiritual life, separate from the physical, material life. St. Damascene rightly condemns this because we, are, we can't divide the material and the spiritual in that way. There is no dualism in that sense, open to Orthodox Christians. Now, let me go on having just touched very lightly, scandalously lightly, I'm afraid, on Messalianism, and focus a little more on the problem presented to St. Damascene of the originist thought tendency.
Origen's thought was like St. John's, shaped largely by the need to reconcile the problem of freedom and determinism, one of the great problems of Greek philosophy. Origen's basic proposal sharp, involved sharply distinguishing corporeal from incorporeal being, body from spirit. And in Origen's mind, the body could never be free, the spirit only could be free. We can only become free by escaping from the body. And by spirit, he included anything intellectual. It's a highly intellectual account. Earthly existence, in its earthly existence, the soul does have a spiritual part, the rational faculty. And it's in our rational faculty that we are able to uh, gradually become free by resisting the claims of the body, which he would call passions. Both good and evil. Any image, any image that comes to us, he would call this a uh, fantasy, needs to be accepted or rejected on the basis of the mind's understanding of the good. Framing his explanation largely in terms of the distinction he does find in St. Paul between the will of the spirit and the will of the flesh, Origen conceives of the will, our ability to choose, as above all the movement of pure reason in the face of irrational compulsions and constraints. So, for Origen, the exercise of the will is always primarily an internal, a contemplative phenomenon. It always involves receiving something and rejecting anything that comes uh, from the body. How to combat this idea? How to explain the integrity of the human person, body and soul together? Must, much of the thought needed to explain this comes in reaction against the originist, Egyptian originist position, the Alexandrian, I should say, originist position, from the Antiochian tradition. Part of the, one of the great uh, works of St. Maximus was to take both strands of theology and put them together. And in doing so, he especially relied on the work of a 4th century author uh, in, the in, the, I'm sorry, in the Antiochian tradition, Nemesius of Emesa. And thanks to the work of St. Maximus taking Nemesius' uh, ideas into his own uh, writings, this is also something that St. John Damascene uh, inherits. And therefore we find a lot of Nemesius' anthropology simply taken word for word into the exposition of the Orthodox faith by St. Damascene. Essentially, Nemesius constructed his anthropology within a framework in which the close connection between body and soul, between the corporeal and the incorporeal, were absolutely respected, which has clear implications for how the will could be conceived. The will could only operate within the whole person. The will's job is not to separate out the material from the immaterial, preferring one or the other. The will also has the responsibility to make sure that the body is always doing the right thing. 
at the right time, in the right way. Because the will is seated deep within the very center of the person. He doesn't rule from without. The understanding of the human being is therefore that the human being is not a separate amalgam, sorry, is not an amalgam of two incompatible substances. But rather because we are formed by God who has united us, body and soul, we are a microcosm in the sense of a bond, syndesmos, uniting physical and spiritual reality. So Damascene says, the human being is, quote, a sort of miniature world within the larger one, a compound, an eyewitness of the visible creation, an initiate of the invisible creation, earthly and heavenly, halfway between greatness and lowliness. This is a profoundly optimistic view of what it means to be a human being. The human being is a kind of divine ambassador. We're called upon to take the message of God's love deep into physical reality, deep into the world which has not yet received that love. With a view to penetrating the world and raising it up back to the source of love. And this can only be achieved by allowing the freedom enjoyed by the intellect to penetrate deeply into material reality, thereby liberating it to achieve its natural fulfillment by means of the virtues, by means of doing bodily good, physical good things, caring for the poor, caring for the, those without homes, caring for those without clothes, caring for those without someone to care for them. Virtues. All this depends on the human will. Quote, again from St. Damascene, the exposition of the Orthodox faith. The human being, having the power to persevere and progress in good with the help of divine grace, as well as having the power to turn from virtue and fall into vice, God permitting because of the freedom of the will. Freedom here understood as the desire to take divine love and penetrate all reality, bringing with it this love. The human body, no less than the human soul, is the field on which the will can really go about the work of virtue. Precisely as embodied, the human beings are able to engage in the work of repentance and virtue. Something which, as we have seen, is not something that pure spirits are capable. Now I also have to talk about another area in which Damascene draws heavily on Nemesius and really going back to uh, Aristotle here. Nemesius uh, carefully distinguishes between voluntary and involuntary actions. Any action originating in the body is defined by Damascene following Nemesius to be voluntary while anything forced upon the person from outside is involuntary. So even when a person is apparently constrained by external factors, the example he gives is that of a sailor on a ship in a storm. The storm is tossing the boat, 
about, the boat's about to sink, and so the sailor throws valuable cargo overboard. This is a voluntary action. It's not forced on him by the circumstances in which he finds himself. It's a voluntary action because the motive force for the throwing of the cargo overboard comes from the body. You, can't, you cannot call this an involuntary action. It's a voluntary one, albeit with some involuntary uh, aspects. In other words, physical reality, what we do with our bodies, always contributes, always has a vote, as it were, in determining actions. This secures for the body a real, not just an illusory, a real role in the working of the will. The will always has to take the body into account. The will, although it is an intellectual, a spiritual, an incorporeal faculty, nonetheless must always work in and through the body. Not because the will is, as Origen would have it, imprisoned in the body, but because the very reason we have a will is to take God's love into the physical world, is to express God's love through our embodiment, to express God's love with our human faces. We're not imprisoned in a material shell, but that material reality is brought to life and grows into the divine likeness by means of cooperation with the will. What links these aspects is they delineate an extremely, as I say, optimistic view of what human beings are capable of, an optimistic moral vision in which the ultimate destiny, the natural destiny, the natural destiny of the human body is to enjoy a maximum amount of freedom. The paradigm for this freedom, of course, is Christ himself, whose possession of a completely fulfilled natural will completely broke down all physical constraints, even to the point that he rose from the dead. Not even the physical constraint, the ultimate physical constraint of death, could keep him down. Free from the threat of death and the corruption that comes from death, Christ had no need to deliberate in order to direct his human body in every virtue and good deed. At stake in the Christological debate in which St. Damascene was engaged is his entire anthropological vision. Now, by way of conclusion for this reflection, too often we, it is said that Greek patristic thought is essentially contemplative, essentially platonizing, in contrast to the active, the practical, the Aristotelian West. I hope that one of the things I've been able to show is that this is a gross exaggeration, certainly when it comes to the thought of St. Damascene and I think, I think also St. Maximus, which means really the entire Greek tradition, the, the entire Orthodox uh, tradition. Stung by Origenism, by Messalianism, even more profoundly by Manichaean dualism, stung by his discovery of vestigial dualism in the thought of people around him. Damascene drew on a variety of scriptural and theological and philosophical resources, 
all of which she put together to explain, to explicate, to describe a fundamental vision of human flourishing. This vision is founded on the inherent goodness of all creation. And it insists that the human will is the means not to the liberation of the soul from physical forces, but rather the liberation by the soul of those very forces, of our physical strength and resources, for the complete fulfillment of the natural potential of both body and soul. This has profound spiritual and ethical consequences. It's a vision that demands a program of total prayer and asceticism and moral living and deep charity for all, toward all. It's a vision that unites the best insights of Neoplatonist philosophy and Cappadocian theology and Antiochian ethics, as well as Aristotelian anthropology and monastic psychology, all of which are drawn together as a challenge to each Christian to accept the high destiny of divinization in Christ. If, partly on the basis of his understanding of involuntary sin, Augustine can legitimately be seen as a pioneer of the modern notion of the will, as an expression of the ego, apart from reason, separate from nature, the choosing machine, man as the choosing machine. I think in Greek patristic thought, we find a very different account of what it means to be a human, far removed from the choosing machine. For Maximus, St. John of Damascus, involuntary sin reflects a failure not of the struggle of the ego for authenticity, but a failure of nature's struggle for authenticity. Not the failure of one part of the body, or one part of the human uh, being, a failure of the total human being. And the return, the turn away from sin, the scraping away of the rust, reveals the whole of that same human being, purified, radiant, with God's light, God's love. It's an idea that stresses the unity of the whole person and the integration of nature and the self. It's an anthropological vision that relies on the essential harmony between the divine and human wills, a continuity grounded in the reception within human nature itself of the divine image. We are obedient to God, not so much in so far as we curb the impulses of nature, as we free nature to do what nature wants to do, receive God's love. I'd argue that this alternative vision will see the persistence of involuntary sin, not as it is in Augustine, as evidence of the depravity of human nature, but of the capacity of human nature for perfection. What remains for us in this reflection now is to trace out some practical implications of this profoundly optimistic human uh, vision of human flourishing. What does this mean in practice? What does this mean in practice when we encounter uh, the reality of sin in our lives? And that's what we will do, uh, move on to do in the following two talks. Thank you.
thank you for listening to this episode of the OLTV podcast. Every Thursday, we have these lectures, and every Monday, we have Jack's Corner, where I, your host, Tarzan Bonanno, sit down with our founder, Jack Figgle, and talk about the founding of the Orientale Lumen Foundation and the goal to bring together the Orthodox and Catholic churches. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing on Spotify or at our Locals page. The links for that are in the description below. Thank you, and God bless.